fun is that? So um, anyway, with that, let's just go ahead and jump into it because we're going to need to make up a little bit of time. But I just ask you to sit. Why don't you stand back up real quick? We're going to stand for the reading of God's word. I Sorry, I do this to you all the time. I'm not in the rhythm of it yet. But we're going to look at Psalm 42. And uh, it's a good one. You sang this song if you grew up in church a long time ago a little bit. But here's what it says. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All of your breakers and your waves, they've gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As of the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in so, so much turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Heavenly Father, we do want to tell you that we love you this morning and Lord, our hope is in you. And Father, I pray for the person who's in the season much like David is right here, battling to find hope. God, I pray that you would meet them right now through your Holy Spirit. Would you meet them? God, I pray that they would see you, feel you, maybe the first time in a really, really long time. And God, I pray that over time that you would bring them out of that place to discover the joy of worshiping you again. Lord, we give you the preaching of your word. We surrender to you fully in all things, and we say, have your way in us. Be glorified right now, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen, amen. and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Um, it's great to see you guys again. Like I said, we do sing this song a lot growing up. Um, this is a psalm that reminded me a lot of the first backpacking endeavor I ever went on. Uh, I'm not much of an outdoorsman, believe it or not. Uh, uh, I'm not a huge outdoorsman. I've, not, I've been backpacking one time, uh, one and only one time, and there's a reason for that. Um, didn't go so well the, the first time, but um, this psalm reminds me of it a whole lot. It was about 12 years ago. Uh, I walked into Neil Tomba's office. He is a senior pastor at Northwest Bible Church. I was a young seminary student at the time, and I walked into his office. I didn't go to his church. He didn't know me, and I came in there, and I asked him for a job. I brought a resume, and I said, hey, I'm starting things up. I want a pastor one day. I, I'd love to help and be an intern or something like that. Anything you want me to do, I'll do it. And, uh, and so it was kind of a weird request, and I loved his response. I went in there, and he's like, okay, well, he's like, Aaron, this is a little problematic for me because I don't know you at all. He's like, I don't even know if I like you. And I was like, that's fair, you know, it's, it's fair. You don't even know if you like me at all. But uh, he goes, I tell you what, I'm taking a few guys backpacking. We're going to be in the Ozarks this weekend, actually. He's like, you ever go backpacking? I was like, nope, never. He's like, uh, you want to go? I was like, I'll go borrow my stuff and I'll, I'll be there with you. And so literally a few days after meeting Neil for the very first time, we're backpacking through the Ozarks together. I don't know if you've ever been before, but evidently like boots are made for one person's feet. Right? They're supposed to go like one person's feet. So I borrowed all this gear. It's not my own. I've got no business doing it. And it's just, it's an absolute mess. And uh, we show up to the Ozarks and we get out of the, the suburban. And 
I should have known I was in trouble when the guy that was leading our trip, he's like six foot three, probably like 225, like rock solid muscle. And as soon as he gets the backpack out, he gets all strapped up and everything. He's like, he's like, all right, come on, guys, let's go. And the dude starts running up a mountain, right? I'm like, okay, uh, simmer down there, buddy. Not as much excitement, uh, you know. But anyway, he's just, he starts running. And church, I'm not kidding you. I didn't see the guy the rest of the trip. The guy took off, and he left, and like everybody else is walking behind him, and he went and did his own thing. I'm like, I don't know if he's alive today. Like, I still pray for him. Uh, I hope he made it out okay. Uh, dude just took off running, and I was like, oh, buddy, we're in for it today. And so we're going up, and it's one of these Arkansas days, hot, humid, is all get out. Um, I've got one little canteen here, haven't done this thing before, and didn't know really how to pace ourselves. We get there about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It's about the, hot, the heat of the day. And so we only had a a half-day thing to do. Um, It's only about an hour and a half, two hours before I'm already out of water for the day, right? You're you're up there, and, like, the blisters are forming because they're not my boots. I shouldn't be doing, like, they're supposed to be special shoes and stuff like that. The blisters are out there. I'm out of water. The mouth already tastes like I've been eating cotton all day. You know what I'm talking about? Cotton candy, like the real cotton. Like, you're like, hey, I'll take a glass of sand right now because it would be better than whatever I, I, I taste in my mouth right now. You're kind of at that point of, okay, this is about, this is not that much fun. And uh, we, we get to the point, it's about 5 o'clock, and we finally hit the place where we're going to go camping for the night. And so we, we pull up there, or we kind of we come up to this, to this area, and we kind of let down our backpacks. I'm like, finally, I get a little bit of rest and relief here. And we go over to the creek where we're supposed to fill up our water bottles, and there is no more creek. The creek is completely dried up. Like, there's no more water anywhere. I've been dying for water for the past couple hours at this point in time. Been bumming a little bit from other friends that spaced it out a little bit longer. And, and uh, like, there's no more creek. And we're all kind of going, okay, this is bad news. Like, at this, at this point in time, everybody's out of water. You don't want to go the entire night, no water or anything like that. And we're just flat out exhausted already. It's only been four hours in this thing, but it, it's hot and it's, it's, a, it's a miserable thing. And so we sit around, and, of course, it's a bunch of guys. And so we're like... One guy pipes up, and he's like, oh, you know what? I think, uh, I think I heard about this river that's about, only about an hour from here. If we keep going, we're going to find the river. And uh, everybody's like, should we do it? And we're like, yeah, the sun's still out. No big deal, right? And so we're like, hey, brilliant. We'll just, we'll just keep going, wandering aimlessly in the, in, the, in, the, in the woods. And so that's exactly what we do. We get up, and we, we keep moving, and an hour turns into quickly two hours. The sun starts going down. And finally, we come upon the next destination, and we get there, and that creek's gone too. Like, there's no more water anywhere. And we get there, and there's, like, there's a little puddle there. That's it. There's a puddle there that's got rainwater left over. And, of course, they assured me, hey, if you got the little blue light, right, then all you got to do is, like, zap the water, and it's clean to drink, right? That doesn't work. I'll tell you that story another day. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, but like that's what we had for like a tiny bit of time. And it, at this point in time, the sun's going down and we're going, okay, this is a problem. We don't know where we're going. We don't, we don't have any water here. I mean, we, it's been four hours. We've been needing water for a long time. The legs are cramping up. The blisters are just insane. And it's just this miserable experience. And so we got to keep going. We keep going. And sure enough, the sun goes down and we turn on the little headlamps on our heads so we can see where we're going. Quickly turns into about 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. Uh, the, the talking at this point in time, church, like, we're not having much fun anymore. At this point in time, I'm like, Neil, I don't even know if I like you anymore, buddy. This isn't about you figuring out if you like me. I'm, I'm about to throw you over this mountain right here. And, um, and so, like, nobody's talking. Everybody's kind of bitter and angry going, what in the world are we doing? It's the blind leading the blind. And we keep going. It's about 9.15 at night. And finally, we hear the most glorious sound you've ever heard in your life. And we hear this waterfall off in the distance. 
And I'm not kidding. It's kind of like uh, that scene when you're watching the cartoons. You got the cartoon guys like they're out in the they're out in the desert and they see that mirage, right? And like all of a sudden, all hope is back. And I mean, we start all of a sudden. It's got this like Red Bull shot of energy come into us, and we start we start trucking a little bit further. We hear the waters up ahead. We get excited and pumped up, and we kind of go down to the river and we see it from a distance. There's this waterfall. We get down to the bottom. And this is beautiful, beautiful, full spring, cool, refreshing water. And we get down there, and I take that backpack off off and we drop it by the bank and and I just swan dive into the spring and everybody just kind of dives into the spring and we just start drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. Church is the image that the psalmist gives us here to describe his desperation for the Lord in this season of life. It's what he says right here in Psalm 42 when he says, as a deer pants for the water, like so my soul, it pants for you. That's how my soul is for you. It is panting for you, but it is longing for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God, he says. In other words, church, it's, it's not a celebration of the final scene when we finally get to the spring and we see the waterfall right there and we dive in and we drink to our heart's content or anything like that. The scene that's going on here is hour eight when we're wandering in the wilderness. We have not had any water. We've been assured that there's water ahead. We haven't been able to find the water and our lips are parched. We've had no satisfaction for a really, really long time. This is a sad, this is a depressing place. Like it's a psalm of lament for the desperate and the depressed. It's a psalm for anyone who is depressed and whose tears have been their food all day and all night. This is a psalm for the person who's looking to find water and they can't find any water anywhere and they're going, okay, Lord, where is my God here? You assured me that there is satisfaction and there is refreshment, and I don't see satisfaction or refreshment anywhere around me. Where are you, oh God? I've been searching for you. I've had this map, and you were supposed to be over there, and I haven't found you yet. This is for the person who's got so much opposition in their life right now that all they can see is darkness, all they can taste is dryness, and all they can feel is loneliness. And what I love about this psalm is that the psalm doesn't take us to that end scene. It doesn't, take us to, um, it doesn't take us to the time where we jump in and we drink to our heart's content. It lets us sit right there in hour eight so that we can know how to fight for hope when you least feel like fighting for hope. That's what's going on here in this psalm. It's, it's, if that's you, it, it, it's, this, it's this time of, hey, it's just before the waterfall's been revealed. It, it, it's in that moment of last desperation when you feel like you're never, ever, ever going to find that water. If that's where you are today, then Psalm 42 is the psalm for you. One of the questions that we keep asking that, that's natural for us to ask in a season of depression, in a season of darkness, in a season of despair, in a season of longing, in a season of wanting more than what you're actually experiencing is, okay, why, Lord, oh, why? Why is this happening to me? What's going on inside of my soul? Where are you? Why don't I feel your presence like I've been assured of your presence in the past? It's a question that David keeps coming back to all throughout this psalm. Verse 5, he says, okay, why so downcast, O my soul? Why is there so much turmoil within me? Why am I mourning, verse 9, over the oppression from my enemy? In other words, like, help me understand what's really going on here, Lord, because I don't understand it at all. In other words, like, I, I don't get it. I used to have joy. I'm not feeling joy anymore. I used to be assured of your presence, and I used to be assured that you were right here with me. I, I'm not assured of it anymore. I'm not feeling joy. I'm not feeling uh, loved anymore. I used to be loved by everybody. I'm not loved by anyone anymore. By the way, we believe that it's David that's actually the one that's writing it, even though these are the sons of Korah, who are different priests that are leading in worship. We believe this is written by David during this season in which he has destroyed everything in his life because of his sin. 
Uh, he's brought on destruction. His family is, has, been, um, has been torn apart. His son Absalom is chasing him, trying to kill him at this point in time. We believe that this is kind of what's, what's, what's uh, the season that he's in. And so he's sitting there kind of going, okay, Lord, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know what's going on. And if you could explain it to me, I'd really appreciate it. Church, it's a good question to ask whenever you find yourself in a season of depression or a season kind of like David's in right now because like, there's a number of different things that could be uh, lending itself to your depression and the things that you're feeling inside. Um, it could be what David talks about in Psalm 32 when he says, when I kept silent about my sin, he says, uh, my bones wasted away and my strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. In other words, the reason, one reason could be it just, could just be a sin problem. I mean, it could be the reason that you're in this place where you were in is because you've been silent about the sin in your life, and that's why you've got so much energy stress, um, uh, kind of sapped in your life, kind of like you are in the summer and stuff like that. You've been holding on to this thing. And if that's the case, he continues and says, here's the solution. Uh, he says this, then I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity anymore. As I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. In other words, like if that's why you are where you are, it's a sin problem that you've hidden, you haven't confessed or anything like that, the solution is very simple, it's repentance. It's what we talked about last week with the three C's of repentance, contrition, confession, and change. That's what repentance is, it's uh, contrition, confession, and change. And what he's saying here is, you'll receive this washing, you'll receive this forgiveness, and God will meet you in the middle of this place. So sometimes... The reason that we are where we are is very simply a matter of sin. We're holding on to it. We're trying to hide it. Uh, we're being, letting it tear us apart from the inside out. Sometimes it's not so much really sin. Sometimes it's a physical problem, which you could argue is also a sin problem because sin destroyed us not only physically or not only spiritually, but it also destroyed us physically. Not only will we physically die, our bodies will break down. It could be that you're dealing with a sickness, which is making you depressed. It could be that you're living really far up north and you haven't seen the sun in months and things like that. It could be rainy days that are piling up end on end, which are leading you to these seasons of depression. It could be in chemical imbalance inside of your head, which would be very much, would be, which would be which would benefit a lot from the help of a doctor or medication as you continue to treat it spiritually as well. So there very much could be this physical thing that's going on right there. It also could be, um, it could be a little bit bigger than that. It could be uh, not so much sin or not so much a physical problem. It also could be the fact that you're just simply being obedient. You're being faithful to the call which God has on your life to go and engage very, very dark situations and very, very dark realities that a lot of people aren't willing to, aren't willing to engage. It's why a lot of pastors and counselors uh, and missionaries uh, will deal with long bouts of depression for a long time because they're always in the battle, especially missionaries. I was talking with some, uh, or I heard a, um, uh, a newsletter from one of our missionaries long, not long ago that was kind of describing, I went to go visit this refugee camp in South Sudan, and she goes on to describe the atrocities that are taking place there. Uh, the amounts of injustice, the hunger, the thirst, the famine, everything that's going on there. And she says, I need your prayer because I am absolutely depressed. I cannot get over the things that I've dealt with. Um, it's why we re read about some of our heroes of the faith, people like Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, even the late, great Billy Graham. Like, they all dealt with long seasons of absolute depression because they're seeing the underbelly of sin and engaging it on a very personal level. Some of you guys are there. Some of you guys have been gifted with that, um, that, that gift of empathy, that heart of compassion. Your personality, the unique wiring which you are, you're able to go very far with people. You're able to engage uh, in levels... Uh, you're able to engage with people in ways that a lot of other people don't understand. When they are feeling pain, you feel their pain. 
When they're dealing with, with, with just horrific things, you go in there and you empathize with them. You weep with them because, because you actually feel their pain too. Some of you are, are gifted that way. It's one of the beautiful ways that God's wired. But you know that that's not necessarily a matter of sin. That's not necessarily a physical problem up here. Like That's just a matter of you being faithful. And the reality that sin and brokenness in our world, like that is a devastating thing to engage in over and over and over again. So that may be the case. It also may just be the case that your circumstances are really, really horrific, kind of like they are with David. If we're right that David is the one that's writing this and this happens to be the season when Absalom is coming after him, like, like we know his circumstances are pretty dire at this point in time. Like that's what's going on. He's got a son that's been ruined by his family. He's got one daughter that was raped by his son. There was a murder over there. That other son's trying to murder him, trying to kill him. I mean, circumstances are piling up and that's absolutely coming after him. But here's what I want you to see, church. Even though David is crying out to the Father and he's going, okay, why, Lord? What's going on inside of my soul? Well, help me diagnose and understand what's going on. Church, what I want you to see is that no matter what's going on, and even though he does not get an answer uh, for exactly what the thing is, church, like he still comes to the Lord. He still brings all of his fear, all of his sadness, all of his honesty, all of the, the, his raw emotions, he still comes to the Lord. He still shows up. He still does the thing that none of us want to do in that moment uh, when the last thing we want to do is get out of bed and come to the Lord. He still comes to the Lord when, when, when the last thing we want to do is pick up our Bible that day because I can't even he- lift my head up in joy. Like He does the thing that none of us want to do in the middle of that place. Church, it's the whole reason we have so many of the Psalms. I mean, we have uh, 67 out of 150 different Psalms uh, are Psalms of Lament. Meaning like they're written, the bulk of the psalm is written from this place of depression and sadness because whatever the conflict is, it hasn't been resolved. It's not written from the end scene of, hey, there's this beautiful deer sipping faithfully at this stream that's been provided for them. Like, no, no, no. Like the, the majority of these psalms are written from the middle of the pain, the middle of the despair, the middle of the sadness, this season of depression when they can't see what's right. They don't know where the water's gonna come from and they don't understand what's going on. Like he's ruined and he is running from his enemies at this time in his life. His family's falling apart. He's got a son who's killing him. So yeah, you better believe he's absolutely depressed. But here it is, church, like psalm after psalm after psalm, David keeps coming to the Lord. He keeps bringing it to the Lord. He doesn't run. He doesn't hide. He doesn't stay in bed a little bit longer. He doesn't sit there. He keeps coming to the Lord over and over and over again because here it is, church, even in depression, we don't have to let our feelings define our faith. It's what Jesus is talking about in John 7 when he says, if anyone's thirsty or spiritually dry, let him come to me and drink. In other words, like even if you're not feeling it today, in other words, like even if like you've got nothing to give, you feel like you can't even stand up today, let him come to me and I will give him drink. So Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. In other words, like even if you don't feel like it, come to me anyway. Even if you're not feeling it, wake up on Sunday morning, come to church. Even if you're not feeling it and it may not be real inside right now, open up your Bible and feast from me every single day and I will come and I will bring you rest and I will bring you drink. Even if you're angry and you're numb and you think that I'm the one that's behind all the problems going on in your life, still come, church, come. Like, like we don't let our feelings determine our faith. Like we walk by faith with or without the feelings, believing that at some point in the future, like the feelings are gonna follow. And some of us, like we hate that idea because like we're living in this time where we believe the lie that um, if the feelings aren't there first, then somehow it's fake. We're just not being true to ourselves, right? You heard that? Like I just wanna be true to myself. And if I'm gonna be true to myself, then, then this needs to be real first. It needs to begin in here long before I ever think about doing something out there. 
Like, isn't that how we think? Like, if I'm going to be real, if I'm going to be an authentic person, then I need to live my life out of what's coming in here first and foremost. And it sounds fantastic today. I mean, that's tweetable, right? Like, that'll get you likes on Instagram and stuff like that. But like, the problem is, church, like, what's true in here, it's largely shaped by what we do out there. I was reading this article this past week, this psychologist named Dr. Noam Spancer, secular psychologist, not a Christian perspective. Again, I told you I love doing these a lot because they're, they're, they're discovering that, hey, what God said, like, it's actually true so, so much of the time. But he's, he wrote this article in which he was talking about how our feelings are largely shaped by the things that we do out there. And so he talked about this famous study. We probably remember it from Psych 101 class. It's the famous Stanford study in 1971. You guys remember this at all? This is like every psych class, one-on-one kind of a thing. But essentially the study went like this. There was a professor named uh, Philip Zimbardo, I believe it is. And uh, he took a bunch of undergrads at the time, and he divided them up. And he said, okay, you over here, you're going to be the prison guards, and you're going to be the prisoners. And they ran this scene out of a basement of one of the psych buildings at Stanford's campus. And so they put them down there. They kind of set up this whole jail cell scene and that kind of a deal. And he said, okay, you people over here, you're the, you're the, uh, you're the prisoners, and you guys over here are the guards. And we're just going to let this roll, and we're going to observe what takes place in the weeks to come. Well, the stu- whole study only lasted about a week. And the reason it only lasted a week is because it only took a couple days before uh, the guards in that scenario became incredibly abusive to those, to, to those who were the prisoners. I mean, they're demeaning them, they're humiliating them, and they started to notice that the demeanor of the prisoners, they literally started to change. These people who were supposed to be acting, they started falling into depression, dealing with despair. They started believing the scenario that they were living out. Here's what uh, the article had to say about the experiment. It said that the Stanford prison experiment illustrates the power of behavior to elicit real powerful emotions. The guards in the experiment weren't really guards, and the prisoners weren't really prisoners. They were all student volunteers. Nevertheless, once they began to act the part, they also began to feel the part. Many people assume that the link between feelings and actions is one way. Feelings shape our actions. You love them, therefore you kiss them. You hate them, therefore you punch them. This view is incomplete because most of the time it's quite the opposite. Our actions carry more power to shape the way that we feel. Church is why Hollywood couples are always falling, falling in love on the set, right? I mean, I mean, think about that. It's always, I mean, it lasts like two hours, right? They get married and, and you know, they're divorced a year later and stuff like that, but it's always happening. Think about it. I mean, uh, Brad and Angelina, Rob, Pat, and Kay Stu, right? I, it's just, that's what we do in Hollywood, right? It's uh, uh, Ryan Gosling and pretty much everyone he's ever acted with, right? Um, and granted, like, they don't last. They don't last, but I mean, when you're doing the act of love, You're saying the words of love. You're having love scenes. There's physical touch. There's affection and things like that. It's not shocking that you end up falling in love because what's true in here is largely shaped by the things that we do out here. Church, it's why Jesus calls us to walk by faith and not by how we feel. Jesus says, come to me first while you're still far away. Come to me still like before you even feel like coming to me. Come to me even though you don't want to get out of bed today. Come to me even though you feel like you can't open up the Bible anymore. Come to me and sing even though you may not even feel like singing. Come to me and serve even though your heart may not fully be there. Come to me in all of these different things and I will give you rest. Church, is exactly what we see David do. Tired, exhausted, the season of depression, all these circumstances crumbling all around him, depressed, and he still comes. And he still shows up because we do not let our feelings define our faith. He continues in verse 4, and I love what we see in verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, 
how I would go with the throng and lead him in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude-keeping festival. In verse 5, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, as a result of what's going on inside of me, he says, I'm going to remember you. In other words, two different times in these verses, like he's fighting to remember what's true in the middle of these things. Church, that is the battle in any season of depression, is it not? It's the, it's the battle to remember, okay, what's actually true? Is it what I'm feeling and experiencing inside? Like, is it really what, what I read about in the word of God? Like, what's really true in the middle of the circumstance? Like, it's always the battle that's going on there. That's what he says in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng, lead him in the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude-keeping festival. Church, what's the psalmist trying to remember at that point in time? What's he trying to remember when he, when he says that in verse 4? I mean, he's trying to remember that there was a time in his life when he was assured of the presence of God in his life, right? I mean, he's trying to remember, hey, there was a time that I was certain that God's hand was on my life. Like, there was a time, I remember those days. I remember those glory days. Like, I remember that high school retreat. I remember the youth group experience. I remember that fellowship that I had in college. Like, I remember the Passion Conference. I remember this time over here. I remember that incredible season of ministry back at Pine Cove. Like, I remember that time during Revived Texas when God used me in incredible ways. Like, all he's doing is going, is trying to remember there was a time in my life when I was, I was absolutely assured that God's hand was on my life. He was present and he was real. He's trying to remember there was a time when he walked in God's favor. He's trying to remember, hey, there was a time when people weren't trying to kill me. They praised me. And there was a time that actually led the people in worship because I was so full of joy and I was so full of being satisfied by God all the time. I was the one that was out there leading people in worship. Never forget a number of years ago, um, my mom walked through a very similar season um, in her life. Uh, it was just after my brother and I, we were the youngest. There's four of us. We were the younger ones. We were finally done with college. We were moved out of the house. She was dealing with a little bit of empty nest syndrome. Some of you guys know exactly what it is like to deal with that, to have your kids gone. She had recently retired from teaching Bible study fellowship. She was a teaching leader there for 20 plus years in Houston. She was exceptional, y'all. She was just an unbelievable teacher of God's word. And I found that out when I was 18. I snuck into one of her classes. I skipped school one day and finally heard her preach and figured out what she did for so long all of my life. And oh my gosh, it was just unbelievable. But she'd recently retired. The kids were gone. And I remember coming back one day and I'm talking with her and she's like, Aaron, I don't know what to do with my life anymore. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, this is, this was what I did. This is my call in my life. I was a mom to you guys. Like, you don't need me like you used to need me anymore. And if you've been there before, you're the, the, the difficulty of, hey, the, the seasons are changing right now. I, I don't have my ministry anymore. Like I used to just pour into all these women and I used to preach God's word and, and we got to see families be reconciled. We got to see hope stirred. We got to see salvation and baptisms and all these beautiful things. And she's like, I don't know what I'm doing. And we sat there that day and I remember asking her, I was like, mom, just tell me, tell me all about BSF. Tell me about the early days. Tell me about, we just went, took a walk down memory lane and she just started just going off. I was like, Mom, what was your favorite series you got to teach? And she's like, oh, Romans. Oh, I could teach Romans all day long. I keep preaching Romans. Like I saw unbelievable things take place. And she just for about an hour just went testimony after testimony after testimony of God's faithfulness and what he had done in her life. And I, can I just tell you, church, at the end of that time, like her entire demeanor changed. Her entire demeanor changed. Like it was a completely different thing. And I don't know exactly when 
there was a turning point that took place, and I don't know exactly when. All I can say is today, she is in this place where she's back there using those teaching gifts. She is pouring herself into the younger generation, right, making disciples of Jesus Christ, restored joy, restored purpose, moved on from the kids that aren't as dependent anymore and things like that. Church, what I think what was taking place is I think that she just needed a little reminder that the same hand of God that was on her back then is the exact same hand of God that is on her today. That his purposes for her did not stop just because the seasons had changed. And I feel like someone here may need to hear that. Maybe the seasons are in flux right now. Maybe it is empty nest syndrome. Maybe the kids are getting a little bit older. Maybe they're not listening to you as much as they listened to you in the past. Maybe your job's changing. Maybe you've got a brand new home. Maybe your ministry's changing. Maybe there's a whole lot of change taking place. And maybe sometimes, church, here it is, the best thing that you can do is to simply take a walk down memory lane And remember that that same hand that was with you back then, in the moment of that absolute certainty, is the same hand of God which is with you today. That's exactly what what he's doing right here. I mean, all he's doing is just saying, these things I remember. Like, I can't see anything. I can't feel anything. I can't taste anything. But this is what I know to be true in the middle of that thing. You were with me back then. I know what favor is like. I know what worship is like. I know what the anointing is like. I know what you would have for me. And so this is what I'm going to hold on to right now in this season. It's all he's doing right here. It continues in verse five. I love verse five because this is where I get really, really excited because this is the part where he starts preaching to himself in this psalm. And I hope you understand, like sometimes, church, it's okay to stroll. Like you wanna go and take a walk down memory lane. Sometimes you need to start just straight up preach to your soul. This is what the psalmist does. Like it's not just a Pentecostal thing. This is a way that we come and we stand in the mirror and we remember, hey, this is what's absolutely true in the middle of this season when I can't see what's true. Here's what he says. He says in verse five, he says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? In other words, he's not just questioning God's goodness in this time. He's sitting there going, okay, hey, maybe the problem's with me. Maybe this is my soul that's a problem. Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? Maybe it's not big, bad God that's bringing on all of his judgment, all of his harsh realities and stuff into my life. Maybe this is something I brought on myself. Have you ever questioned your soul in the middle of this time? What's wrong with you, soul? That's what he's saying. Like, why are you so downcast, oh, my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, soul. Hope. Take hold of hope, hope in God, for I will again praise him. We're not gonna stay here forever. My salvation and my God, that's who he is. He's coming back again. He's gonna make all things brand new. It's the same thing in verse 11. Church, like why are you so downcast on my soul? He repeats it. Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. Church, sometimes you need to stroll down memory lane. Sometimes you need to straight up start preaching to your soul. Like, it's exactly what he's doing. It's how you fight for hope. I mean, one minute he's like, why, God, oh, why? I don't understand what's going on inside of me. And the next minute he's going, Lord, give me hope. Like, hope in hope, soul, hope, hope in God. Do it. Just hope in God. Praise him again. He's my salvation and my God. Like, this whole thing, church, is a battle over which voice is going to prevail in this season of depression that you're in. Like this whole thing is a battle over which voice you're gonna listen to in the season of depression that you're in. So why in the world would you let only one voice do all the talking? It makes no sense. Why in the world would you let one voice do all the talking? I love what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, the main trouble in the matter of spiritual depression is this. We allow ourselves to talk to us rather than talking to ourselves." Some of you need to hear that again. The main trouble in the matter of spiritual depression is this. We allow ourselves to talk to us rather than us talking to ourselves. Church, it's why we are where we are. It's why we are where we are. Like, don't let the wrong voice be the loudest one in the room. 
Don't let the enemy's voice have the last say. Church, when the enemy says, where is your God? I don't see him anywhere. You need to preach to your soul. You need to remind him like he does in verse 8, that the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. His, at night his song is with me. In other words, like, you want to know where my God is? At night his song is with me. He is with me in the middle of this season. He is with me in the middle of this despair. He is with me in the middle of this dryness. He has not, he has not left me. He has not forgotten me. He has not forsaken me. He is with me in the, in the middle of this thing. Even in the storm, even in verse 7, all your breakers and your waves, they've gone over me. But my hope is that you command your steadfast love, and at night your song is with me. Church, you've got to preach to yourself. Like when the enemy says it's never going to get any better than where you are right now. You, know, you need to preach to your soul. You need to say, soul, stop being downcast, oh, my soul. Because my hope is in God. My hope isn't in myself to, to, to rescue myself from these situations that I can't control. My hope is in the one who spoke the world into existence. The one who numbered the hairs upon your head. The one who knew you while you were in your mother's womb. The one who loved you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and live the life you could not live. And he willingly went to the cross and he bled and he suffered and he died and he conquered sin and death so that any and all who would come to him in faith may have the hope of resurrection power. Like that's the God that I have my faith in. That's who I am hoping in. My hope is in the one who gives me the Holy Spirit and who lives inside of me, which assures me it can and will always be better. He can always produce more love inside of me because the Holy Spirit produces love inside of me. That's what we do when we surrender to him. He produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, church. Because he lives and because he lives inside of you, you do not have to stay downcast, but you got to preach to your soul. Your soul has to know it. It can't just be one voice that's demanding the whole conversation in your head. Like when the enemy says he wants to crush you because of your sin, you got to preach and you got to remind him, hey, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Conviction, yes. Conviction, absolutely. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has completely set you free from the law of sin and death. Church, when the enemy wants to keep you into despair, you need to remind him that Christ is coming back again. And when he does, he's going to make all things brand new. There's going to be no more sin, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more crying, no more pain, no more shame. Because the old things will have passed away. Behold, new things have come. In Christ is the ultimate total victory, church. When the enemy says that he is completely done with you, you need to preach to your soul and remind him along with Paul in Romans chapter 8 when he says, What can separate me from the love of God? What can separate me from the love of God? And he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or things present or things to come nor height nor depth nor powers or any other created thing will ever be able to separate me from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, that is what is true no matter what you're feeling inside. Church, do not let only one voice do all the talking. Church, you gotta preach. You gotta preach to yourself. You gotta preach. You gotta remind your soul all the time of what's true and what he's revealed is true through his word. And you got to know it now, here it is, so that you'll be prepared to preach to yourself then. And for some of us, that may be the very problem which is crippling you today. Could be the fact that we've never taken the time to understand God's word. We've never taken the time to meditate on what he said is absolutely true. We don't know the promises of God. And so when we come to these seasons of depression, we are not ready to fight. We are not ready to preach and we are not equipped with the word of God to be able to minister to us appropriately or in the fullness of that power in the middle of that season. Church, Martin Luther, he got this. Spent a lot of time reading some of Martin Luther's biographies this past week. Martin Luther was one of these church heroes that we talk about a lot around here. 
uh, because he dealt with depression probably more than any other church father that we have. He's a guy that probably could have benefited from a lot of modern-day medicine and modern-day um, help that we have today. Uh, but he was notorious for battling through depression for a really long time, which makes sense given what God called him to do, right? Can you do, here's what one of the biographers wrote about him. He said, again and again throughout Martin Luther's life, he descended into severe spiritual anxiety and emotional struggle, starting with a particularly long and intense depression that began a few years after the Reformation in 1527. During that period, he heard a haunting inner voice that asked him again and again, Du bist allein klug, which is German for, you alone know everything? Really? Luther, you alone, you know everything? You, you understand what needs to be reformed in the church? Really, you do? That is, what if you are the one that's leading thousands of people into damning error and breaking the church? At this hounding accusation, self-reproach plummeted him into the utter depths of despair. Can you imagine being Luther here for a minute? The burden that he carried for all of us today? Can you imagine this? I mean, think about this. Being the sole opposition to the mighty church, the mighty Catholic church at the time. Being the lone voice who's largely going about it by himself, who's opposing the massive mighty church, and he's standing out on a ledge and he's calling the people who are in power to accountability. Does that ever go well for the people that are calling people in power to accountability? What about today on Twitter? No. Now, can you imagine being the one who is challenging the only Catholic church? Can you imagine the amount of spiritual opposition and the amount of spiritual warfare that he must have dealt with night after night after night while he's saying, no, 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 no. Salvation really is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. Can you imagine the amount of spiritual opposition that he went through? You want to know how he got, it, how he got through it all? It says that it drove Luther back to the word of God, back to prayer, and the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. Church, what's going on with the, back, the Eucharist? Uh, communion, right? It's what we do, the Lord's Supper, month after month. Why would, it, why would that be a help at that point in time? Like that was the thing, as you participate in the brokenness of Christ's body uh, for your salvation, for the, his, his blood, which is shed for you. That was the time for Luther that reminded him that, hey, you know what? Um, God in his infinite love sent Jesus, and he's walked this path before. He's entered into my pain. He knows what abandonment feels like. He knows what physical pain feels like. He knows what it's like to thirst. He knows what it is to have people that you know, love, and trust abandon you and walk away. He found incredible comfort in, there in the Eucharist. It says that another valuable medicine in the struggle for Luther was, here it is, the fellowship of the church. He insisted that no one should be alone when they opposed Satan. The church and the ministry of the word were instituted for this purpose, that hands may be joined together and one may help another. Here it is. If the prayer of one doesn't help, the prayer of another will. Church, that's how you fight for hope. That's how you fight for hope. I was talking with somebody this past week that was sharing with me a little bit of their healing story. And, and she said, you know, I, just, I, I heard about freedom prayer for the longest time. I rejected it. I resisted it. Freedom prayer being, hey, we don't just come and intercede for you. You set up an appointment with a team. And a couple people, they come and meet with you, and it may go an hour, it may last a couple hours, and they just sit there, and you wait on the Holy Spirit, and you discern where it is that God needs to bring healing into your life. And she goes, I heard about it, I waited. She goes, honestly, I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't even want to come to church. 
I didn't want to go talk to some strangers and do this long, weird prayer session and see what happens. I didn't want to do that. But she goes, you know what? When I went there, I met with these people, and God did this thing where he just exposed these, these dark parts of my soul, these things that I've never dealt with in my life. He brought healing to me. He brought refreshment to my soul once again. Church, don't do this alone. Don't do this alone. Church, that's how you fight for hope. And I know like some of you are there. Some of you are in that season of depression. Some of you are in that dark night of the soul. And that dark night of the soul for you has been lasting for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's turned into months and maybe even turned into years. You've been asking the question, why, oh, why so downcast on oh, my soul? What's going on inside of me? Church, keep showing up. What David shows us is that he is a safe person. He's a safe God. You can keep showing up over and over and over again. You can show up in the middle of your honesty, and you can keep fighting to remember the truth. But whatever you do, do not try to do it alone. The image that I kept coming back to this past week was um, I'm a huge Rocky fan. Anybody else a, a big, giant fan of Rocky, those, those awesome movies? Early 80s, thank you. Come on. Creed came out recently, and that was pretty awesome, too. It's like a remake of Rocky IV. I was pretty excited about that. Um, the best one. Anyway, uh, I was reminded of the old Rocky days, and I loved Mick. You guys remember Mick, his character? This is, this is Rocky's trainer. Um, I think I got a picture here. Do we have a picture there? Yeah, you guys remember Mick. Mick was the old man that kind of, even before Apollo became his man, but Mick was the guy that was there in, in Rocky's training. Mick was the guy that was there teaching him how to fight. He was the one that was helping him get tough. He was the one that was preparing him for the battle, which was still to come. Mick was the one that, when the battle came and Rocky was in the middle of the ring, Mick was the one that was standing there in the corner that was telling him, hey, Rocky, do it, do it, do this, go left, go right, duck, this, that, and the other. Church, every single Rocky needs a Mick. Every Rocky needs a Mick. We weren't meant to go through this season alone. Some of you are in the middle of this season yourself, and and you're looking for your mix. Some of you are in the season of happiness. You're in the season of, hey, of health. You're kind of in the season of, hey, I've been drinking from this water for a long time and things are pretty good. And you need to understand that your loved ones around you, your friends around you, the people in your small group, the people that are, that are your family members that are out there that are striving, they need someone to be their mick. They need someone to come alongside them and help them battle when they can't preach to themselves, when they can't remember what's true, to come alongside and say, you know what? I want to be your Mick. You be Rocky. You're in the middle of this battle, and I'm going to be your Mick. I'm going to help you remember what's true. I'm going to hold you up. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to read scripture over you. I'm going to send you those text messages. I'm going to drive you to freedom prayer. I'm going to pay for your counseling so that you can sit there and you can talk so that you can deal with these deep seasons and get at the heart of what's going on. Church, we were never, ever, ever called to do this thing alone. Church, we want to help. It's why we do freedom prayer. It's why we pay for counseling around here for some families and people that need to go and get counseling. It's why we do prayer on Sunday mornings with the elders at 8 o'clock. You are welcome to come anytime. We'll meet with you at our elder meetings. We'll meet with you on Wednesday nights. We'll meet with you whenever, wherever you need to come and to pray with you because you weren't meant to do it alone. But here it is, church. You've got to show up. You've got to show up. Because we don't have to let our feelings determine our faith. And what David shows us is when you keep showing up over and over and over again, he is already there. He will meet you in that place. And the spring is right around the corner, even though you cannot see it yet. 